look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. After week five of the National Football League season, a very eventful week five, and that includes a fairly stunning development on Tuesday night with a decisive Tennessee Titans route that I don't even know if Mike Vrabel saw coming. I'll talk about that in a moment. Let me tell you about our guests this week, two topical guests. We've got Ed Werder from ESPN. He was on site as the Dak Prescott injury happened uh, on uh, Sunday in Arlington, Texas. He'll talk about that and where the Cowboys go from here. And then also to talk about so many interesting quarterback situations, so many. We'll get Dan Orlovsky, uh, also from ESPN. I think Dan is really one of the up-and-comers, one of the rising stars in the analyst business. Uh, So he'll join me also to talk about everything else other than Dallas around the NFL. But first, you know, let's talk just a little bit about what we saw on Tuesday night. As I'm recording this late Tuesday night, I still think most of us probably are just a little bit stunned uh, at, you know, what we saw in Nashville, Tennessee. Tennessee 42, Buffalo 16. Uh, It's a little bit of a cliche, and I'm not going to say it wasn't that close, but 26 points is about what the difference in these two teams was. Just three things about Buffalo first. Number one, you know, this is a really dispiriting loss for the Buffalo Bills. It had to be a dispiriting loss because they had plenty of time to prepare for this game. Yeah, they didn't know when it was. But they were well-rested, had plenty of time, and they are on the verge of a really tough stretch of their schedule coming up. Uh, You know, basically, they have to play uh, the Kansas City Chiefs next Monday night, you know, again, on a short week. And then after they get a breather against the Jets, they got the Patriots and Seattle. Uh, in weeks eight and nine. So uh, Buffalo has got a tough road coming up. And the two things on the field that I think were really discouraging, number one, Josh Allen. And again, you don't want to make too much out of one game, and I won't, but Josh Allen looked like the 2018 Josh Allen. Uh, And they just simply could not throw the ball downfield against the Tennessee defense. His longest completion was 22 yards. It was a Desperation job late to TJ Yeldon in the end zone. But, you know, I just think they look totally out of sync right from the start of the game. And Josh Allen, who's been so accurate, had two horrible throws. The first one resulted in an interception because he threw it behind Andre Roberts on the first series, uh, 
you know, on Buffalo's first series. So just a bad night for the Buffalo Bills. And, you know, as odd as this sounds, you know, we may look back at this game uh, in middle or late December and say, man, that was a huge game in determining home field in the AFC. You don't know, but wow, I, I don't, if you're the Buffalo Bills, you have to be wondering who were those people out there. Now, let's get to the Tennessee Titans. Absolutely fantastic. Great job by uh, Coach Mike Vrabel getting a team that had not played or practiced uh, heavily football in 16 days. They played Minnesota, and then they didn't have a practice until this past weekend when uh, they they had two light practices at their facility in Nashville. But it was absolutely amazing. I want to read you one thing, very short thing from my column on Monday, in case you missed it. I wrote a chunk of my column, the lead of my column, about one of the weirdest Sundays I've ever seen in the NFL. And I talked to Ben Jones, who's a nine-year veteran center for the Tennessee Titans. And so I, I talked to him, and I asked him what he did to basically stay in shape for, for two weeks. And here's what he told me. Jones, the veteran center, told me he practiced three to four times a week the way he'd work at the facility in a weight room in his garage about 20 minutes outside Nashville and combining cardio with arm strength, attaching battle ropes to his vehicle's trailer hitch and getting his heart rate up on those. Jones said, last Sunday, I sort of simulated a game in my backyard. I got a script of plays, then ran 60 plays on air, sprinting 10 to 15 yards downfield on each play. I used a stopwatch between plays to figure out the time that I needed to take so it would be realistic. So I felt like I got a game in right there. Now, <laughs> if you are Mike Vrabel, if the coach of this team, John Robinson, the general manager of this team, don't you see that? Don't you read that? And you say, that's why I have faith in this team to overcome the adversity of basically having two bye weeks back to back and not being able to work out. I think that is a tremendous sign of the maturity of this team. And although I was really surprised at how well they played throughout, after talking to Ben Jones, I certainly was not shocked. So I give him credit. The three other things about this game that I thought were very, very good from Tennessee's standpoint is, number one, I think Ryan Tannehill was uh, – was very good, very accurate. He didn't try to do too much. He was without two receivers, but he did get A.J. Brown back. Uh, he had been out for a couple of weeks injured. Um, and, you know, Derrick Henry was okay. Three yards of carry, wasn't great, but he was there to, to uh, pick up the slack when they needed him. And I love the big plays on defense for Tennessee. They never let Josh Allen get, get comfortable at all. And uh, not only didn't they let him get comfortable, but Malcolm Butler had sort of a kind of a, uh, you know, an exorcising game. Um, you know, he hasn't been great dating back to the beginning of last year, but he had two picks of Josh Allen, one off a deflection uh, and played a very, very good game for uh, 
for Tennessee. So, you know, where do we stand now in the AFC? It's very interesting. After five weeks, the two teams tied for the top in the AFC right now, Tennessee and Pittsburgh, both 4-0. And then you've got Buffalo, Baltimore, Cleveland, and Kansas City, all 4-1. So you've got a fairly top-heavy AFC right now. But I find it so interesting that the, you know, the two teams at the top, um, Pittsburgh, who I don't know how many people saw that coming, and then Tennessee, if you knew what they had to undergo because of COVID missing two weeks, I think you would have said, man, could I see them, you know, being tied for the top spot in the conference right now? No. But give credit to Mike Vrabel. Give credit to these players for showing up, for not using an absolutely major excuse as an excuse. Hats off to the Titans, and we'll see how they do. They got a short week now, a very short week. They got to get ready to play Houston on Sunday back in Nashville. So we're going to get to our podcast guest right now. We're going to start with Ed Werder of ESPN. He's covered the Cowboys for a thousand years, and he was in the stadium um, in Arlington, Texas on Sunday when Dak Prescott suffered the devastating injury. Let's go to Ed Werder. Back on the podcast, happy to be joined by Ed Werder of ESPN. Ed was in the stadium in Jerry World on Sunday when Dak Prescott went down. And Ed, we're going to go around the league a little bit to take advantage of your expertise. But I want to particularly take advantage of what you saw on Sunday and what it was like. First of all, can you just tell me where are you when you're covering a football game now? I mean, how how where do you watch the game from and how are you able to do your reporting at these games now yeah it's become a lot more difficult to be a reporter covering nfl teams as you might imagine given the covid restrictions and the limited access to which we're now allowed um and so pre-game ordinarily we would be on the field doing live reports the first week we were moved to the observation level which is just above the field uh, and for the past two weeks, we've been moved even higher, and we've been in the uh, Miller Light Plaza. Um, so we, almost every week, we've we've gotten further away from the field and the players. And then once the game begins, we're actually in the press box as normal, um, but there's far more spacing than we've seen anywhere else. Now, the great thing uh, from my experience of being in a few different places now is that at Jerry World, there's no plexiglass between reporters. Like, for instance, there was at SoFi uh, week one when I covered the Cowboys at the Rams and the opening of the new stadium there. There was actually plexiglass between every reporter, then two empty spaces, then another plexiglass reporter. And so there was really no way to interact uh, with people at all in that circumstance. Yeah. So tell me what you saw in Dak Prescott and uh, how you – it had to have been a, a strange thing inside the stadium because there's not that many people there. Yeah, the uh, stadium capacity is about 90,000. And in every year but this one, the Cowboys have led the NFL in attendance at over 90,000 per game. For this particular game, there was about 25,000 people uh, allowed to attend. And I remember seeing Dak you know, take off running to his left. I saw him be tackled awkwardly. And then I saw him just sit there. 
And that made it apparent that something was wrong with him. And I initially thought it was like an Achilles tendon injury from my vantage point uh, because he was kind of holding his leg up. Um, and one of the Giants players had torn his Achilles earlier in the game, and it looked similar to that. But then when, when you saw the replay on TV and the cameras uh, zoomed in, you could see that his foot was turned uh, in an unnatural way. And at that point, I think we all knew the inevitable that his season was over. Um, the crowd, the amazing thing to me was, like I said, there was 25,000 people there. And when Dak was down and there was, he wasn't getting up, there was, the silence was, was astounding. It was like nobody was in the stadium. And then when we saw him tearfully leave on the back of that cart um, and, you know, raise his fist up, it sounded like it was a capacity crowd of 90,000 people. Wow. Wow. It was interesting watching the reaction and then seeing the reaction come in from everywhere around the league. The players, the Giants were heartbroken. Uh, Jason Garrett, semi-hugged McCarthy, you know. And then in downtown Dallas, one of the buildings had all the lights off except, you know, a number four. And Ed, there's, he's, you know, he's a beloved figure in Dallas, very much. And it's so strange to think that the 135th pick in the draft four years ago could be probably the most popular single figure <clears throat> in the Metroplex right now. And, and I have to tell you, that is no small accomplishment um, because of how beloved a figure the guy he replaced is. Yeah. Tony yeah. Romo. Yeah. Uh, there, there was actually a very strong sentiment, an unmistakably strong sentiment uh, against Dak Prescott uh, for quite a long time because people felt like Tony Romo had been wrong in the transition, you know, because Tony Romo injured his back in a preseason game. Dak Prescott was the fourth pick of the draft that year, supposed to be a developmental player, you know, wasn't even supposed to get on the field, maybe not even be in uniform all year because Tony Romo was a starter, Kellen Moore, now the offensive coordinator. He was a backup, but both of them get hurt in training camp and are out for extended periods of time. And Dak Prescott comes in. He wins games 11 in a row, the longest winning streak in franchise history. And, oh, they've been playing football in Dallas for 60 years. Um, and, and he's so successful, and his personality is such that he wins the locker room. He wins the coaching staff. He wins everybody over except for Jerry Jones. And by the time Tony Romo is healthy again, they're actually stalling Romo, uh, who, who wants to play. He wants yeah. his job back. Yeah. And they know that they can't make this change unless there's a crisis and they lose a couple games. And as long as this kid is winning at Green Bay and winning at Pittsburgh, they cannot change quarterbacks. Right. And so Tony Romo never gets back on the field again. Yeah. So, you talk, so there was a very strong backlash directed at Dak about the fact that he replaced a guy and, you know, everybody thinks that, hey, when you get hurt in sports, you don't lose your job to an injury. But guess what? Sometimes you lose your job to an injury. Yeah, yeah. Drew Bledsoe did. Yeah. How'd that turn out? Um, Ed, so let's talk as we sit here 48 hours after the injury. We're recording this on Tuesday night. Where do you think Dak stands physically in his ability to get back healthy in 2021? Um, he's a very strong-minded person, a very strong-willed person. 
I think the only thing that gives you any kind of pause um, when you think about how difficult this is going to be for him to be separated from his teammates is we remember some of the mental struggles that he had being separated from his teammates when he was not yet signed to his franchise tag and couldn't be a part uh, of their offseason. And he talked about the anxiety and the you know, depression that he felt at times during that and, and had to get professional help. And that was just a few months ago. Um, and so I think that was part of the reason I think Mike McCarthy said yesterday, hey, I personally and we as an organization want to support him mentally and emotionally and you know, physically to the best of our ability. I think there's a concern about that. Um, I mean, and that's common in guys who are as competitive um, as Dak Prescott, who put as much into building relationships with their teammates as he does. You know, I remember Troy Aikman telling me, hey, the, you know, the hardest thing in the world is to be injured and, and watch your team lose without you. And then he corrected himself. Actually, the hardest thing in the world is to be injured, not be able to play and watch your team win without you. Um, so it, it'll be a difficult thing. Physically, it sounds like this is not that uncommon. Um, as long as there isn't an infection, and I assume they don't believe there will be since they've already released him from the hospital, He's, he suffers his injury. Uh, an open fracture, so there's a risk of infection. Um, and that's why he was rushed uh, to the emergency room and, and, and hospitalized and quickly operated upon. Uh, and then they fixed the dislocation. And he was in the hospital for less than 24 hours. That's it happened incredible. In less than 24 hours. Yeah. So uh, physically, I, I think he'll be able to overcome it. I think it'll be a challenge for him. You know, everything you hear is the estimated time of recovery is typically four to six months. Um, and so that clearly puts him in the off season at some point. And then I assume we will be dealing with, well, what's the contractual, you know, situation at that point in time? Yeah. You know, I hate to do this, Ed, but I'm not going to ask one question about the contract and what you think might happen just because I hate talking about contracts. I understand everything about it and we all do. And I hate to say it, but right now, who cares? I mean, I don't know. I I think you might be taking the right approach uh, because, not long after he left the field on Sunday, I tweeted, I tweeted a series of um, posts about what an emotional scene it was and describing all that. And then I don't know, five or six posts later, I mentioned that, wow, the risk that, that he took has now been realized. You know, yeah. he didn't, he didn't sign. He's playing on a one-year tag. And the only thing, the only risk he took was a, that he would perform poorly, which clearly was not having a record season. Um, and then the risk of a potential, you know, significant injury. And that was realized. And I was vilified like <laughs> you cannot imagine for yeah. a lack of sensitivity. And maybe that's right. Yeah. Um, but my feeling was, you know, this has been such a prominent story for the last two years. And yeah. it's so unusual that a quarterback goes into a season and plays on the tag. You know, only uh, Kirk Cousins and, and Drew Bledsoe have ever done it. Um, that it demanded recognition. It was a part of that story. Yeah, here's, I guess here's how I look at it. You know, it's different. If this injury happened a year ago and he's making $2 million, yeah. bucks, it's different than when it happens and he's making 31.4 guaranteed. Yes. That, that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I can't get too outraged by it. But anyway, let me, let me just ask you, this is a bit of an overarching question. But as I've been asked this question in the last couple of days, oh, man, Andy Dalton, he can't lead them to the playoffs, could he? I said, 
It's not Andy Dalton that's the issue on this team. Correct. This defense is allowing 36 points a game. You know, Dak had to score 40 and 37 to win. I mean, so so let's not talk about Andy Dalton. He'll be fine. You know, the offense will be fine. If this defense doesn't do something to stop giving up 40 and 38 and 36 points every week. So tell me if you think there's any hope for the defense. Well, I think the thing that maybe puts it in perspective is that we're talking about the defense being um, the concern if they're going to continue to win games. And that's we're saying that with Dak Prescott having his greatest season now being taken off the field for the rest of the year. We're saying that with both of the Cowboys' offensive tackles, Tyron, Tyron Smith and Leo Collins, being out for the season. We're saying that with a rookie center making his first start because Joe Looney is out for the season and Travis Frederick retired. We're saying all the Cowboys are missing all of that, three offensive line starters and their quarterback, and we're saying, don't worry about the offense. The defense is <laughs> – let's worry about the defense. So, I mean, that's a remarkable thing, but it's it true. Is. It really is true. I mean, they're allowing 36 points a game. 36 points a game. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah, so they – they should be a winless team. As great as Dak has played, as many points as they've scored, they they have won two games against opponents who are 0-10 combined. They've won, <laughs> they've won both of those games at home, and they've won yeah. both of those games on a field goal as time expired. Oh, so my they God. So should, they should be 0-5. Yeah. And even then we would be saying they might win the, they might win the division <laughs> because the division's that bad. You know, Dan Patrick had me on his show, and he said, um, are we looking at the at the Cowboys as a playoff team? And I said, well, they might have to be. Like, somebody has to be out of the NFC East. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I, I don't think Andy Dalton is going to hold them back and be the reason they fail if they do. Yeah. It will be the defense. And yeah. can the defense get better? I mean, it's hard to imagine it could be worse, but it really hasn't gotten better. Um, now – they got Anthony Brown back last week. He's a nickel corner. He actually scored a defensive touchdown. Uh, they might get Leighton Vanderesh back this week, which would be a significant upgrade in personnel, and he would be their defensive play caller again and be in the middle of the defense. Um, they might get Sean Lee back at some point. They might get Cheeto Wuzier back at corner at some point. So at least the defense theoretically should start getting guys back, but they also, in the game that they lost Dak, they lost probably – their best defensive tackle in Tristan Hill yeah, uh, yeah, for the rest of the year. That was overlooked because he had the misfortune of getting injured at the same time Dak Prescott got injured. But, yeah, I, I don't – I don't. it's not a good team is what we're yeah. saying. They're not a good team. But the amazing on- thing is – the amazing thing is the Giants coming into this game had scored 16, 13, 9, and 9. And they got 34 the other day. Oh. And – they almost they probably should have had 41 if they didn't have a stupid very marginal penalty on that uh you know on that special teams play but but anyway look i i i i agree with you in all that you said but i do think that it's almost if any of these teams in this division if the eagles come to life even a little bit you know they could win this division too i think it it's going to be a comedy of errors, and it's going to be totally fascinating, I think. Look, if the, if the Cowboys are going to do anything, and that includes doing whatever it takes to win the division, which, oh, by the way, only would have taken 8-8 eight and eight last year, and they couldn't pull it off. I mean, they went 8-8, eight and eight, but they, 
their eight wins weren't against the right teams. If at the end right. of the year they beat Philly instead of beating Washington, they win the division. So can they go eight and eight? Yeah, I guess I think they could go eight and eight. Um, but they got to quit turning the football over. I mean, yeah. they've been outscored off turnovers 60 to 10. Wow. So it's not just the defense's fault. It's a bad defense. It's a horrible defense. And it's made worse by the fact the offense turns the ball over 11 times. And many of those have come on their own side of the field. So you make a bad defense defend half a field. It's not going to, it's not going to go well for you. Ed, I've only got 30 seconds left, but I want to ask you this one thing about the new Orleans saints. And are you worried about, I know you cover the saints a lot. You worried about this Michael Thomas thing, maybe, you know, where he slugged a teammate in practice, maybe being, so when he comes back, maybe it's more than him just coming back from an injury. Maybe he's got a team issue to deal with as well. Well, I, yeah, it, and it must be really egregious for Sean Payton to take him off the field. Agreed. And, Agreed. and he must have been in the wrong completely because his victim or the other co-conspirator was not punished in any way that we know of, right? Yes. He was yeah. not similarly punished. Now, I would say this. I think they faced a bigger issue in terms of bringing their locker room together with what happened to Drew Brees in the offseason uh, than, they, than they made with Michael Good point. Thomas. Good point, yeah. So Good point. And, and I, think, I don't think there are many coaches who are better at building team chemistry right. um, than Sean Payton. Yeah, I think they'll fix it, but I don't know. When I heard that, I said, this is bad. This is bad. And you're right. Uh, Gardner, whatever, I forget his name, gets nothing. So this had to have been a really egregious situation. And But you know what? Watching that game, Ed, against the Chargers – they need Michael Thomas badly. This team, I think, almost, I would say, I'd rather have Michael Thomas on the field than Drew Brees in a given game as of right now because they miss Michael Thomas and his ability to make 50-50 balls, 70-30 balls more than anything right now. And that, again, speaks to how egregious this act must have been. Yeah. That that is that fact is not lost on Sean Payton. Like, right. oh my God, we can we can have this guy in this huge game. We gotta win this game, and I'm going to choose not to have yeah. the player who's led the NFL in terms of percentage of you know catches on uh, on his team in, yeah. in the entire league for the last three years. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Edward, I really really appreciate you giving me some insight on Dak, on the Saints, on this lovely Dallas defense. Uh, I hope you are coping with life pretty well in the pandemic, and uh, I want you to stay healthy. Well, I'm glad to be covering football and traveling like we've always traveled to see great games and great moments. And when you can bring yourself to the point of discussing Dak's contract, I'm <laughs> I, I, I will be here for that. <laughs> You're the man. Thanks a million, Ed. You bet. Thanks, there. And now we'll catch up with Dan Orlovsky. I really enjoy talking to Dan. He has got strong opinions based all in fact, based all in film study. He's got very strong opinions on so many people and teams in the NFL. And you always know that, uh, you know, he, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't hate anybody. He's not out to get anybody. He's just seeking the truth. So I've really enjoyed it. He's going to rise high in this business. And we'll get into quite a few topics with him. We caught up with him 
when he was on his way to ESPN for some work earlier on Tuesday. Happy to be joined on the podcast this week by Dan Orlovsky, the former NFL quarterback, uh, now obviously the rising star analyst for ESPN. And we're catching Dan on Tuesday afternoon as he drives from his home in his beloved nutmeg state to, uh, to ESPN to, uh, to tape some stuff and to do NFL Live, I believe. But Dan, thanks a lot for joining me. It's always great to be with you, Peter. Thanks, man. Hey, so, um, you know, I've got, as I, literally, when I uh, called you, I said, what do you want to talk about? And you added about eight things to my list. So we'll just, let's just bat out a few things that to me are very interesting. Okay, right now, here's my five most interesting topics slash teams slash players in the league. Number one, San Francisco. Like, you know, I remember last January where Kyle Shanahan was saying that Jimmy Garoppolo you guys are making a mountain out of a molehill. There's nothing wrong here. And you know what? There still may be nothing wrong. It may just be he's got a high ankle sprain. His mechanics are screwed up, whatever. What do you see when you watch Garoppolo and you watch the Niners right now? Yeah, I mean, the, the injury certainly is playing its part, right? Uh, but at the same time, this is a high ankle sprain. You know, this is not a torn rotator cuff. This is not, uh, you know, a torn ACL or anything like that. And so, you know, with the... The, the reality is this, the obvious thing, they've been decimated by injuries. Okay, we all know that. And even on the offensive side, you know, they've been lacking, you know, Debo and Ayuk, like no one's really had the opportunity to play together, Kittle, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I know this, Kyle Shanahan's one of the best play designers and plus play callers in football. So that kind of minimizes the loss of some of that talent. That, that minimizes that. Then the quarterback should be able and Jimmy was a guy that um, they won uh, in spite of last year. Certainly had some moments, especially in the fourth quarters. But they need to win this year because of him. And he's not doing that yet. Mechanically, is there anything you watch right now when you see Garoppolo that you just don't like? Uh, it, it's not just – I wouldn't say it's a mechanic thing, Peter. I'd say it's a, a comfort thing. You know, like when you watch him in the pocket, he's always been a guy that had feet. I'd say if people remember like a Peyton Manning where the feet were constantly in movement and motion, almost like mini pistons on the ground. He's always been that guy. There's a difference between having that as a base to be ready and that showing a lack of comfort, confidence, trust, belief in what's going around you. You don't want it to look like... Um, like it's out of control. You want it to look like you're just ready to play football. And almost like a shortstop is as a pitcher's pitching the ball, his feet are ready and constantly moving. He's ready for that ball to get hit into either kind of hole between him and second base or third base, where Jimmy looks to be, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with the football, panicky. And that to me is the, the biggest issue more than does he mechanically look flawed. If Snacks Harrison shows up in a couple of weeks in Seattle and if Jamal Adams gets right uh, and maybe if John Schneider can trade something for some sort of pass rusher, are the Seahawks really good or are they destined 
to be one of these teams that's going to have to score 35 every week to win? No, the Seahawks would be really good. You know, if they're, it's not that they need to have a dominant pass rush. You know, like I said this a couple of weeks ago, the Seahawks have flipped. Years ago, it was have a dominant defense and offense, be good enough. Like just be good enough, especially situationally. Like when we needed you, get the game to the fourth quarter, be good enough. They flipped, you know, their offense is right now dominant and defense, just be good enough. Just be situationally good enough to get us off the field in the fourth quarter for one more possession. Now that's cert certainly like a, a dangerous way to live, I, so to speak. But with the secondary that's long, you know, I think that Neil 35 is going to be a really impactful player moving forward for them on their defense. He's built like one of their long corners, but he's playing nickel inside for them. But their defense doesn't need to be great. It just needs to be okay. And if their pass rush becomes okay, then they're for real, for sure. Dan Orlovsky, I'm going to ask you about two of your former teams that you spent a year with each of them. One is Houston, one is Indianapolis. Uh, you were with Houston 10 years ago this year. And when I think about the Houston Texans right now and what they're going to do next, I think about, and this is a lazy way to look at it, what coach, what system is going to be best for Deshaun Watson? If you're Cal McNair, the owner of the Houston Texans, what direction are you looking in for head coach? And do you have one in mind you think would be ideal for Deshaun Watson? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'd say this. We've become consumed with offensive football in the NFL, especially at the head coaching hiring position, that you still have to remember that it's about leadership and organization and structure and discipline. And so... I have to look at those qualities of whoever I hire more than how much they know X's and O's. Now my desire is to find that person who's one of the best X and O's people in the NFL right now. That's who the 49ers got with Kyle Shanahan and the Rams got with Sean McVay. I, I have four or five names that are at the very top of my list. Eric Bieniemy would be the first call I would make. I said this after their Houston loss, after the playoff loss to Kansas City last year, Peter. Call Eric Bieniemy right now. I just can't, and I know there's the belief that, okay, he, he's not the guy. That's not it what Andy Reid says. I've heard Andy Reid say that he's integral in their past game development and how they install their plays and whatnot. And so, you know, I think offensive scheme-wise, he's been around and he understands it enough. I'd imagine being around Andy and watching the success that he's had leading um, has rubbed off on him. Does he have to interview better? That's something I've heard. Sure, but it only takes is one great interview. But if he, if, if, if he tells me and shows me that he's a leader of men, he's one on my list. Arthur Smith is incredibly high on my list. I think Arthur Smith is as, as good an offensive mind right now as there is in the NFL. I think that watching him call that third quarter drive down 12 against Minnesota two weeks ago was brilliant because it showed me great discipline, which matters to me as a, as a, a head coach. Um, so he's up there. I think Brian Dable and what he's done for the development of Josh Allen in Buffalo, again, as a offensive creative play caller right now, it's just fantastic. Knowing that he's got a history with Saban would matter into me. Um, those would be probably the three that I would be at the top of my list. I think they'll call Lincoln Riley um, just because of his 
creativity on offense. And a, a sleeper name that I'll throw out there, and I did this a couple weeks ago, uh, Mike Furry. Mike Furry is a guy who played in the NFL, came up from nothing, undrafted, all that stuff. But he's the leader of men. He's the discipliner. It's the big picture structure within your organization. I like those names. Um, is Philip Rivers fixable? And would you be thinking right now of going to Jacoby Brissett? No, Philip Rivers is not fixable. You're not going to change the gunslinger from, I, I, I don't know exactly where, North Carolina or something like that, or Alabama, wherever Philip's from. Northern Alabama, yeah. Okay. That mentality made Philip Rivers a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Famer in my mind. He's one of the great, best quarterbacks we've seen over the last 20 years. You're not going to change that. You're not going to get him to, you know, be more cautious with the ball, to value the football more, to understand that, you know, that football team doesn't need aggressive play. It needs um, very strategic and decisive play. So I'm not, you're not changing that in Philip Rivers right now. I don't think they have to go to Jacoby Brissett today, but I, I think the way that you phrased that question is exactly where my mind is. Frank Reich needs to make his have his mind ready to move to Jacoby Brissett. He needs to be ready to move on to Jacoby Brissett. I think they play the Bengals this coming weekend, if I'm correct. Yes. Um, listen, if there's a if there's a turnover early in that football game by Phillip, I've got to move off of them. Because I'm not being fair to my football team if I'm not. I'm not yeah. being fair to my top three defense if I'm not. I'd say this, Peter. The two plays that were the glaring mistakes last week, the interception for the pick six and then the safety, more than the end result bother me is the process of how they got there. The pick six, it's a good play call against the defense that you have. They build all these triangles in their pass game. Philip actually goes through progression the right way. And he looks right at Mo Ali Cox, who's open. And the defenders split. This is not a difficult thing. And he moves off from them and throws the pick six. Like that to me is going, wait, how is that happening? That's, I brought you in to not do that. Yeah. And then the safety, like the safety, he sees the safety, the, the defensive guy, the safety come. He knows the tailback has him. And he turns his back and he watches the running back abort the play action fake and go to the safety because that's his blocking responsibility. And he drifts six yards away from it, right yeah. into the left tackle. I can't, that's a rookie thing. That's a young yeah. quarterback thing. And I can't have that. Yeah. I think it's very interesting what you're saying, especially about turning it over. Um, I think the Giants kind of are seeing this. I mean, in the absolute opposite, uh, you know, 180 degrees in his career, early in his career, obviously with Daniel Jones now. It's, it's amazing how he spent so much time this offseason concentrating on not turning it over. And I think whatever he has, eight turnovers in the first five games. You don't want – you can't tell a quarterback, don't turn it over. But it's like Jameis Winston, the people who said – Give another shot in, in Tampa. No, five years is enough of a shot. I, I, that's yeah. why I wouldn't wait too long if I were Frank Reich. Because, look, you got Cincinnati, then you got your bye. 
and and here's the four games or th- then you got Detroit really and then the four games after that is Baltimore Tennessee Green Bay and Tennessee those might be four those might be four games against top five teams in the NFL so if you're questioning who your guy is then you better do something about it and those four games could have you know like this could be a difference th- those turnovers could be the difference between getting in being a two seed, winning your division. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't know. And that's, I mean, they're three and two, their two losses are because of Phillip. Like at, at the end of the day, it's because of the turnovers by Phillip. And I know that's the simplification of the position. And you're right. You can't tell a quarterback because some points the ball has got to be put in harm's way. But at the end of the day, the Colts are built to play great defense, run the football efficiently and just value as a quarterback especially when you cross the 50 teams aren't going to hang 24 plus on the the Colts points are a paramount. So I'm not going to make it easy for the other team to score. And so that's why I think Frank Knight needs to be ready in his mind mentally. Okay. If I see it again, it's time to go. I keep thinking when I watch the saints, it's all Michael Thomas being missing. And I do think that's a lot of it, but I'd say for the first 40 minutes of that game last night, I would have absolutely legitimate concerns about Drew Brees. And, you know, he salvaged it late. He did a, he, you know, he was, he was okay late and he, he won the game late and all that counts is the W. What's your level of concern about Brees? I think it's still minimal, Peter, you know, like they've scored, they've averaged over 30 points the last four games without the, second best, the best, the third best receiver, however people want to put him, like in football without him, you know, and they're an offense that builds everything through Michael Thomas. They don't build their offense through Drew Brees or their offensive line or Alvin Kamara. They build it through Michael Thomas. Everything works through him and them to still not have him and Drew still not to have him in a time where they didn't get any preseason reps with Traquan Smith as a still a young player. They didn't get any preseason reps with Harris and so, you know, I, I still think that my level of concern is minimal. Is Drew going to be good enough for them to win football games? Absolutely. Now, if you're asking me what's my level of concern for them to, one, you know, make a legit Super Bowl playoff push or a playoff and Super Bowl push, I think that's a very fair question, and I would say concern. One, the defense isn't good enough, so they're going to have to score points. Their defense is not good enough right now. They're going to have to score 30-plus every game. Can they score 30-plus dinking and dunking and screening people to death? I don't think so. I don't think once you get into the end of the season when teams are starting to play better defense, because I think we'll start to see that, um, once you get to the end of the season when teams really have a beat on exactly who you are right now, I don't think they're going to be able to dink and dunk and screen teams to death. And so it's either they've got to find ways to create explosive plays and I don't know how they do that or who they do that with, or their defense is going to have to become somebody they haven't been in through the first five weeks. I want to ask you this as a, as a quarterback, not necessarily as an analyst, okay, but just as a quarterback. So you and I exchanged some text messages about the fourth down play with Tom Brady in, in uh, you know, in Tampa. And, uh, or in Chicago, rather. Yes. And, and it was, to me, obviously, you know, it appeared as though he didn't know it was fourth down. But, but even that, 
you know, even taking that, and I guess, I guess, you know, this is what I want to ask you about as a quarterback. I wonder why, as such a great player, which Tom Brady is, why do you throw, and I've watched the coaches tape on this too, why do you throw to a well-covered Cameron Brait, 27 yards downfield, instead of a wide open, uh, you know, check down running back, Keyshawn Vaughn, uh, regardless of where the first down line is. But I want to know in that decision, I want you to read Tom Brady's mind for me. I'd say the simplest way is, or simple thing is, his mind was made up when he broke the huddle. This is my play call. And I broke the huddle and I got all go. I got four verts. And I like Cameron Braid on four verts. I just like the tight end. The defense lines up, okay? I, I love the scene versus this play. That's all. That's, I, I'm throwing this football. And that's, you know, quarterbacks will often do that. You've heard this phrase, Peter, before, like, don't predetermine where you're going to throw the ball. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever bought into that. I, like, you need to predetermine before the ball comes to you where you're thinking about throwing the football, right? Like, that's how you play fast. Now you react. The problem is, and I've seen this a lot nowadays in quarterbacks, is they assume where they're going to throw the football. All right, I got all go, and that linebacker's there. I like it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw it to him. You need to predetermine. I'm throwing that ball unless that linebacker drops out underneath. And so I think that Tom in that moment was just so committed to throwing that scene. He probably thought earlier in the game and said, I missed that one, or I could sneak that in. That linebacker is not good in coverage. I'm throwing it. And that's that's how you get so committed to a thought process in two seconds. That's the wrong one. Did you ever get really injured badly like Dak Prescott did the other day? Uh, no. You know, I've broken bones and all that stuff and been knocked out a couple games, but nothing like that. I've seen that. I've seen that injury in person on the sidelines. I was there for Connor Barwin down in Houston. Um, and I just remember watching it live going, oh, my goodness. Um, but I'd never experienced something personally or that I saw Sunday afternoon. Nothing even close to that. What do you think is going through Dak Prescott's head right now, sitting at home, probably on painkillers, uh, a bunch of flowers around him, maybe some family, but he's not with his team anymore. And it's such, that's, it's that's such it an me. incredible fast, absolute fall off the cliff ending to your season. What's going through his yep. head? I miss my guys. I miss being the quarterback of those guys. I said this yesterday on NFL Live. You know, we the conversation since the injury has been about the contract, and I know all that, and they're, they're certainly fair. But, like, what I want people to understand is – um, there's, there's, there's two kinds of players in the NFL, really two kinds of guys, so to speak. There's guys that love football. And then there's guys that love what football is, brings them. And I think Dak Prescott's a guy that just loves football. He loves being the guy for that group of players that I'm the quarterback. That's my huddle. That's my football team. This is my stadium. This is my Dallas Cowboys stadium is mine. It's a very, um, prideful, uh, intimate, kind of territorial role. And quarterbacks take immense pride in that stuff, man. They take immense pride when they know they walk into that that 
that huddle, those 10 other guys are all locked in on me. And this is the first time that Dak doesn't get to do that, that he doesn't get to be their guy. On Sundays, he doesn't get to be the guy to break down the team and walk out to start that game and, you know, give the fourth quarter pre-snap or pre-huddle rallying cry. That's one of the greatest things ever about playing quarterback is that stuff. It just, it's, it's this, it's this almost alpha male type of feeling that you get every day. I mean, you get that every day. And Dak has experienced that every day since he took over for Tony Romo. And all of a sudden it's gone. And the other thing this, Peter, and this is the, this is also the ugly part, but it's the truth part. We play, the NFL is a next man up, move on type of mindset. He knows that those guys are thinking now, all right, Andy Dalton, let's go. Like they, they're thinking Andy Dalton's our quarterback now. I'm not saying they're never going to think of Dak Prescott or they, Andy Dalton's replaced him long-term, but right now Andy Dalton's their leader. That's Andy Dalton's huddle. That's Andy Dalton's team on Sunday afternoon. And that's, that's not a fun feeling, man. That's not a fun feeling to know that somebody else is, you know, like um, somebody else is taking care of your family type thing. I think that's, that's a very emotional journey to go on. You know what is so interesting in the last couple of days, the last 48 hours since he went down with that injury, there has been such an affectionate and warm reaction from everybody, from people who hate the Dallas Cowboys. No one hates Dak Prescott. Uh, I told a story in my column on Monday about how I saw him at Yankee Stadium a couple of years ago, and he asked me to come and sit down. And I sat down with him for like an hour, and we just talked. It was just a conversation. I don't even remember what we talked about, some football, but some about his life. And he's just a good dude. And that's why everybody, you hear the outpouring from Giants fans, from Eagles fans, from people who wish the Dallas Cowboys would, you know, crawl in a hole and die. But that has really impressed me. The fact that no matter what you think of the Dallas Cowboys, you love Dak Prescott. Yeah, I, I think that in that moment, you know, everybody was a Dak fan. You know, everybody was a Dak fan. I, that, that just doesn't happen. And that's why I've never seen anything like it, man. I've never seen anything like that, where that single moment can bring everybody, put it put the whole NFL world on pause. And we forgot about fans and hatred and allegiance and rivalry. Everyone forgot about that. Everybody just was in that moment a Dak Prescott fan. I'm going to end with one last question. I don't think in your lifetime you could ever make this statement. Your lifetime as an NFL fan, follower, and player. I don't think you could ever make the statement that Man, the game I'm really looking forward to this week is Cleveland-Pittsburgh. <laughs> and I just absolutely love this game because Cleveland is explosive. They're scoring 37 a game in their last four weeks. Pittsburgh has got a scary good defense. The Miles Garrett factor coming back in this game. I don't know. I'll just ask you off the top of your head. What do you think of this game? 
Oh, it's an outstanding football game. I mean, this is what I hoped it was when, or would be when I saw it on the schedule. And is Cleveland going to finally live up to their expectations? You know, like, you know, what's fascinating is one team is exactly what I thought they would be. The Cleveland Browns are exactly what I thought they were going to be preseason. I thought they would be a team that was heavy play action, take leads early on football games, play okay defense, but, you know, win the game at the end of the, you know, the third, fourth quarter with their run game. Baker's been really efficient with the football, except for the fourth quarter. We can get into that. But they're exactly what I thought they would be. The Pittsburgh Steelers are not. I thought the Steelers offensively would be like, all right, you know, is Juju really going to become a one? Do they really have a one? Does Big Ben look like he used to? But that defense is going to be unbelievable. I don't – I see them the opposite right now. That offense is very good. Chase Claypool is not a one-week player. Like he is a, he, he is, he's trending towards becoming a impactful, a very impactful receiver. Big Ben looks outstanding. Their offense has changed. The ball's coming out of his hands. They play horizontally at the line of scrimmage and they let their athletes get out in space. Um, but their defense is vulnerable, Peter. Like their defense is vulnerable and I can narrow it down to two, two people, 34 and 39. Um, Edmonds is a liability in pass coverage right now. Just not good enough right now in pass coverage. And Mika Fitzpatrick is the nosiest safety in football. And maybe he's super nosy because they got a great blitz package in, in front. But if that blitz package doesn't hit or that front doesn't get home, that ball goes over his head a lot. And it just takes two or three plays like that a game to swing the game. You can get blown out real fast. And so I think Edmonds needs to get better in coverage and Minka needs to play more discipline in the middle of the field that that defense is not going to be what I thought they should be preseason wise. Yeah. Hey, Dan Orlovsky, as usual, we could talk for four hours and maybe one day we will, but 25 minutes is plenty for us this week. And I thank you so much for taking the time on your way to work. I appreciate you, bud. Anytime, man. Thank you. My thanks to Ed Werder of ESPN and also to Dan Orlovsky for bringing you a little bit closer to what is right now a really fascinating NFL season. So, you know, that's it for now. I would, I would just tell you that I think one of the things we're going to see coming up this week, we've sort of run out of, of rope or we're very nearly out of rope for a bunch of more games to be rescheduled. So the NFL, I believe, at some point is going to have to make a decision whether they're going to add another week to the schedule at some point or whether they're going to let some teams play 15 or maybe 14 games. I believe they'll be comfortable with doing the latter. We'll see. Um, and only time will tell. I've had a lot of people say, well, why don't, why don't they announce what they're going to do? Well, they don't know what they're going to do. Because in this particular case, as Roger Goodell told me about six weeks ago, why make a decision before you need to make that decision? And so they're not going to make the decision. And I think it's a smart idea for now. So have a great football week, everybody. Enjoy the games. How about Cleveland and Pittsburgh? In Pittsburgh. When is the last time Cleveland and Pittsburgh both have been really good? That's the game I'm going to have my eye on in week six. Have a great football week, everybody. Take care.